This is Pub Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pub Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring four, count them, four techno experts. Eric Newman. Hi. Chris Grabowski. Hi. Tyler Dinner. Hey there. And special guest, Ryan Swiner. What's up? This week's episode, Start Me Up. And that's not a euphemism. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to my left is the wonderful, the talented, the beautiful, the insufferable Chris Grabowski. Hello. How are you? I'm dinner, right? Just doing all right, okay? And to your left is Tyler Dinner. Hello, Tyler. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Fantastic. And I'd like you two to welcome our special guest for today, Mr. Ryan Swiner. Hey, Ryan. Welcome, hey, Ryan. Hey. Thanks. Well, welcome to, uh, welcome to this podcast. Welcome to our little corner of the internet. I feel How very the... welcomed. Thanks. And you're coming to us uh, from Denver today. Uh, Boulder. Right? Boulder. 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 Yep. Okay. And how is uh, and, and and how is that? You're usually based in Los Angeles. Can we say that? Yeah, yeah. I'm usually in Los Angeles. I, I'm finding that Boulder is getting way too liberal right now. Okay. Yeah, I was in a I was in a pizza store and there was uh, uh, the logo. They they served all the, p- the slices on little crucifixes, and they uh, uh-huh. they they had they had they had all these shirts with their arms really spread out that said our slices are this big. You know, one of the sound oh, effects I wow. don't have are, are studio audience laughter. I really should have worked. <laughs> <with this one>. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry, what was that, Tyler? Like a drum kit, but a ching thing. Huh? You know the drum kit, like, sign off. You mean a rim shot? Yeah. Yeah. The, the water fountain dispensed wine. That's pretty good. Exactly. Well, uh, it's certainly nice to have you here, and we wanted you on uh, because you're part of a startup accelerator that's going on right now in Boulder. That's, and, that's correct. And uh, wait, how, uh, how long is it? Uh, it's about three months. So it started in... Um, it started in late Feb. We got through March. Uh, yeah, and demo day is on May 20th. Okay. And can you walk us through kind of the, like, what a startup accelerator is? Sure. Is playing the home game? Yes. I mean, there's different ones uh, out there. This is, a, this is like a, this one's a little more intimate than the average, than the average one. I think, like, the one everyone knows is Y Combinator. Um, that's basically where you get 100 startups put them in a room and then they say we're gonna do nothing to help you here's some money and here's a list of people you can talk to now that you're a yc startup um and uh but this one's a little more intimate so we got about uh how many companies are there here there's about there's about seven six or seven that okay. are, are are part of this they call it a cohort um generally like two people on each team our team is the weird one we've got like four people um, but yeah, you get in here and they just have like a sort of an endless stream of, of, uh, mentor people, people they've, people they've gathered contacts with on the Boulder scene. Um, and they come in and talk about different aspects of, uh, branding, finance, storytelling, advertising. Um, and you just get like endless feedback from pretty sharp people, uh, about, the direction your company's probably going in, direction you probably should be going in, whether your name should change, 
and um, and 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 are there offers offers made right there at the end of the accelerator? Uh, yeah, potentially. Uh, you kind of get a sense of uh, if you're going to get invested in on the, on the way to that as well. And then in a number of cases, there's there's companies where funding doesn't even doesn't even really make sense. Um, but so ours, you do you do you go, you go through the whole process and you realize ah oh, this 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 is not really a service that people are going to want. No, 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 it's just like it's literally it comes down to the to the business model. So you know some after you go through enough analysis, some some business models it wouldn't really be significantly it wouldn't there wouldn't be a great deal of advantage in uh, in putting funding behind it. It would probably just be like unnecessary stress on the model. You know, you're probably better off just go out and start gathering revenue if your if your business model lends itself to it really like funding is and when you say gathering revenue you mean just actually just doing the doing yeah it. just just doing just executing on without on losing, whatever your model is because you know a lot of people i think seem to look at these these offers especially with you know these big number they see we live in a startup culture they see these big number uh investments and they see these these companies where uh, the, the founders walk away billionaires and they want a piece of that but every time you do add a new investor it of course chips away at some of the equity and yep. uh you don't want to dilute yourself too much or else you won't have a company yeah yeah and there's some interesting like little rules of thumb that i've uh gotten exposed to over the last couple months or so like uh oh, yeah. we were we were in uh we were over at batshit crazy ventures which is uh headed up by alex Bogusky, and um uh, he's the he's the guy responsible for the rebranding of Domino's. you know how Domino's doesn't suck uh, anymore that's that guy's work extra garlic and butter on their pizza now no the pizza is still the same their branding is better oh yeah they garlic that shit up now it's so good <laughs> What are you doing, Tyler? What are you doing in Brooklyn getting Domino's? I don't get it. I just know for people that do, and then I eat a slice, and then I eat five slices because I can't stop because the garlic. Okay. Huh. Yeah, it can happen. I guess uh, one one thing uh, that I kind of want to ask because I guess it's not too clear to me, uh, Ryan. Yeah. Are you in a company that is going through this, or are you actually working for the accelerator itself? Oh no, I'm in a I'm in a company that's going through that's going through this accelerator. Okay. Interesting. Mm Hmm. Uh, but yeah, so we were in this meeting with like Alex Bogusky and this guy Dane, and they're just like spitballing against our idea. There are a couple of our, our mentors in the project, and um, one of the things that came up is that um, if you have a B two B play within your business model, uh, it's typically the easier route to go down because it almost always requires less funding because the, the the revenue lines are, like really like where people need shit tons of funding is when you're is when you're trying to go for like a, a, a B2C play. Uh, because customer acquisition customer acquisition is just so much harder when you're trying to get to consumers like like uh, end consumers because they they don't typically feel like they should have to pay anything for anything. Whereas business- And they're more disparate and they're harder to you know, they're more spread out geographically, they're more spread out in terms of tastes and uh yeah, and they don't they don't your, communicate with each other about And you need to have much more of a refined message than I guess you would if you were just B2B, correct? Yeah, pretty much. But yeah. and also I think it's just the core of it is just that business people are used to paying money to make money. Like they're used to getting together a a, a set of tools in order to make a service that they can draw a margin on. Um, and do you think anything with well, the the modern internet economy and 
you know, us all growing up, uh, the generation of software pirating and music pirating and stuff, uh, that it's kind of we've been sapped of this idea that things should cost stuff? No, I mean, I think some for some things, yeah. I think for some things we, we clearly have... We clearly have come to the conclusion that we shouldn't have to pay for certain things. But I think it's still the case that important information still costs money. There's still – information is still a um, – it's, it's still not cheap to get access to important information. And when you, what do you mean information? Um, I mean, for instance, like our, like our startup, we, we essentially give people access to uh, the price history of things on Amazon – um, and we have to pay for access to that uh, that third party that that feeds us that stuff. And like you just don't you don't stumble upon that data randomly because people know that it's it took some resources to aggregate it and organize it, and they have no reason to just like put it out there for free. So there's like there's certain things that still cost money to get access to. If you and in the financial world, it's just like rife with rife with tools where. Uh, people are paying a premium to get access to information faster gotcha and this is the information economy so it would make sense that you monetize the information yeah and that's even like whole businesses are built around like like big data plays have been a buzzword for like a year or two now yes that that does remind me and uh speaking of more of the b2b side i uh i'd kind of bring up that there uh, does seem to be statistically speaking more money in b2b like you look at uh, Cloudera, which are kind of like a uh, Hadoop and management uh, uh, big data stuff as a service uh, company or just a platform, rather. Uh, they're about to IPO, and they're actually expecting a pretty positive IPO. Well, I should say they announced an IPO, uh, that they will IPO uh, this past week. Is that like when you uh, have to go to the bathroom really badly and you're holding it in? Yeah. I think we all know what an IPO is. An IPO so or Hadoop? <laughs> Hadoop is... Hadoop sounds like it could be a bowel movement of some kind. <laughs> it's actually named after a stuffed elephant, so it's kind of weird. But I like the street fighter. Is it? Yeah. Where uh, the guy who the guy who built it, uh, his daughter had a stuffed elephant named Hadoop. What kind of weird name is this? Like a, this child's imaginary friend name that she she put on this yeah. elephant elephant, and that became the name. Of this. I mean, you, you ever have a stuffed animal as a kid? I, I mean, it's right up there with Babar. Yeah, it's like an Indian name, I think. I didn't, I didn't have any toys as a child. What about Babar the elephant? Or Babar, sorry. Babar? Sounds like an Arab elephant. Okay, well, Hadoop might be... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hadoop anyway. could be an Indian elephant. An Indian, yeah, yeah, there you go, an elephant. Indian elephant. Um, that's cool. Uh, so, uh, uh, Christian and Tyler, Ryan and I actually have a little bit of history together. We went to high school together back in South Florida. Uh and you actually, Ryan, are the reason that I got into professional web design. And I don't know if I actually ever told you that. Uh, I mean, I think I probably guesstimated. I mean, because I started making websites when I was 13 or 14 years old. I don't know why. Because I, I, oh, no, I do remember why. I had a, uh, like a sixth or seventh grade class um, that involved, it was like Congress Middle School. For whatever reason, they had like a web design class. This is back in 2000. And, one, 2000 2000 or two, yeah like really like quite a ways back um and then uh i think my my folks got me like a macromedia back when it was macromedia they got me like the suite of like dreamweaver and fireworks and whatever uh back when there were just like apache servers and css css wasn't even a thing yet 
Was it? I don't think uh, it was. I mean, it, uh, it really. What, what year was it this? Depends. Two thousand. Nineteen ninety-nine. Oh, yes. It I did exist. Yes, but CSS was a thing for. It was a not, good but few the, the, the idea it? of what we use CSS yeah. for now, though, is not a lot. I mean, you could you still that that no, era it, of web it, design was I mean, still very much full of uh, font tags. You weren't doing like keyframe animations with CSS back then. No, but, but you weren't also you also weren't doing like display tables or things that are vertically centered or even horizontally centered. Yeah, blocks. I remember. I remember building layouts no, and tables. You're just messing with like margin and color. Yeah. And many more HTML attributes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, then I had, <laughs> I, I entered. I think I introduced us to our first um, odd client, Giovanni Giovanni Molina. He's still. You can follow him on Instagram. He's he's a very strange creature. I don't know if we should speak his name. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he's a, he's an odd dude. Like he, he's he's cringeworthy. It just makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, especially the older I've gotten, the weirder he gets in my mind. And okay, he's the, he well, he's the type of person that uh, he says that we should drink at least ten cups of coffee a day, and then. I would agree with that. Yeah, but then you should see just the type of frenetic energy he has. I swear to God, he he writes and talks like Donald. Like uh, the way that his, yeah, his writing okay. style is, it like it's almost identical to Donald. I think his self concept must Fantastic. be similar. Yeah. He, but uh, uh, what is it? Yeah. So you introduced me to what was my then my first client. I guess it was your first client too yep. in like 2004. And what happened was I'd also got into web design around the same time around. <clears throat> my first website was for my seventh grade science class in '99 on Angelfire. And uh, um, and I was like kind of toying around with web design, and I got into PHP in 2002. Uh, I was making a web. I was I was doing like you know, just putzing around making websites, not really for anybody. But I saw that you were actually doing it and making money from it, and then you were also getting a bunch of attention and people saying, "Oh man, that's really cool." I said, "Well, I, if Ryan could do that, I could probably do that." Yeah, and then, and I, then I and then I did, and then we started working together, and then you left to go. Uh, yeah, I went and joined uh, the, the military. Force. That was a horrible idea. Well, no, because they, uh, you, you don't have any student debt. Okay, got, yeah, that's fair. You got a full-ride scholarship to a probably really good education. Uh, you just had to do some things that you might not be too proud of, maybe? Yeah, I, I mean, I, was, I think I just didn't sign up for the right major. I have no idea why I signed up to be a physics major. I should have just kept going with the computer science thing. It would have been way easier. would have been way easier. I have no idea. Interesting. But you did end up with a job doing nothing, getting paid a decent salary as a, quote, physicist for the government. I did. I did end up up getting a nice job doing practically nothing for, like, five years. Uh, So to live in – I got paid to live in Boston and Los Angeles for, like, five years and then deployed to Honduras for half a year. Uh, Yeah, it wasn't bad. I can't complain. Um, Do military IDs ever expire? Can you get those benefits – um, they do. I tried to use it at the Grand Canyon uh, about a what month do you need and a half ago. to use it ago. at the Grand Canyon for? You can get th- – because you have to pay to get into the Grand Canyon now. <laughs> um, what? It's it's a crack. It's a crack in the uh, earth. Yeah, I mean I suppose if you were willing to like, I don't know, really hike it out. Around, if you like, if you just parked short of that gate and just like walked through there. I'd I've be- never been actually, so I have no idea. Uh Okay, so I actually I hear this it's is fenced, a new. It's fenced off. Is that what it is? I don't think it's fenced off. I think they're just relying on vast expanses of land to like. If you want to take a nice road to get right up to the south side of the 
the south side of the canyon, then okay. you you're gonna have to pay to use that nice road. And but if you have a military ID, I think it's free. I had a military ID, but I pulled it out, and he like the guy looked at what uh, that ID is expired. And I'm like. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely <laughs> like, expired. War, should be like the wars haven't ended yet, <coughs> right? Uh, yeah, I can do that. My love for this country <laughs> doesn't expire. <laughs> Patriotism doesn't expire. Yeah, exactly. My PTSD Freedom. didn't expire. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. I'm on a waiting list at the VA right now. It's so long <laughs> that I don't even have to be there. I think but, I was um, I was high as well at the time, so that was interesting. <laughs> interesting. And um. What is it? So while you went to the Air Force Academy, yeah. you left you left me with Giovanni, and yeah. uh, this is a guy uh, that m- made a bunch of money off of the housing bubble crisis ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and then rolled those winnings into an independent independent film company in Boca called Real Films. He's still and doing that, isn't he? He's still doing it. They finally, I think, it took them ten years to film. Their big movie, Scapegoat, and it looks like the car, the car chase scene. It looks the first the movie uh, looks like the most cliche action movie ever. Can you actually and watch it? Where is it? He has a trailer. He has a trailer for it. I only know that because one day he. This is the guy. This is a guy who. I mean, talk about equity. I wish there were some sort of like percentage, percentage something I could get rather than the two hundred bucks he would pay me to he'd call me up one day. Be like, Eric, you know how DreamWorks has a website? Yeah, okay. I want DreamWorks' website. Can you do that uh, in a month for two hundred fifty bucks? No. Man, <laughs> yeah, I don't Steve, even. Sp- I don't know that I would make one people. page for two hundred and fifty dollars anymore. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I mean, the the whole well, everything has changed from back then. I mean, you you wouldn't do anything the same way, and the value propositions have completely changed. It's a new era. Yeah, it really is. And uh, you took a ten year break, and then and then decided to climb climb the mountain of modern software development. And I think that you've done it. Um, yeah, you're, yeah, I'm back uh, into it now. Um, now. Back into it, and you're at the startup accelerator, uh, pitching your thing. And uh... I, I mean, I did what I, I did what I do best. I found someone who was also like really good at it, who I could become good friends with, and so I like piggybacked onto that experience. So without having like my own network uh, of like contacts and clients and whatever, I sort of have been able to get back into it, get some client work, and get my bearings about me. Um, That's good. And then you're also now in the uh, the React hell. Sorry, lifestyle. Like the rest of us. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're a front-end guy? Yourself. No, no. Yeah, like my, my condolences to you front-end guys. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I spend most of my time with, like, Node stuff. I don't like to bring in a framework until I really have to. All right. I, I should just say, my condolences to anyone who's dealing with JavaScript. Whoa. I mean, JavaScript yeah. is getting nice. Yeah, it's gotten <laughs> better. But, uh, I don't know, I'd... Take the languages I write every day over those, which I used to write I every day. I don't have to write JavaScript anymore, but you know, I am pity those <laughs> who still do. Well, I, I, I guess I'm just building things that rely entirely I'm on math and science instead of business logic. I kind of like that. It just kind of works better. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's a lot more straightforward, and I get to well, solve a lot when, cooler problems. Well, uh, when web browsers render Go client-side, you can get back to me. They do. Well... It's a transpiler, but you have to do a transpiler for ES6 anyway, so... What's transpiling do? Uh, transpiler basically just says... Uh, so think I of it as if you were to treat ES5 as assembly language, 
And then you have this transpiler to function like a compiler to say, take this higher level language and convert it into the thing that the browser will actually run. So wait, you're so taking like, Go uh, with, and turning it into JavaScript? Basically. Yeah, there's this thing, Go for JS. I've never actually used it. It looks a little... I'm sure uh, that's a winner. Hip brain for me. It is weirdly popular, but uh, it's, I mean, it's not used in too many like actual production, like gets a lot of traffic sites, but... Like it, you still have to transpile even ES6 stuff if you're using like uh, a webpack or uh, Babel or any of that stuff. You're still transpiling anyway. I'm still stuck on yeah. this pile. Uh, but you don't, you browser. don't really have to transpile stuff anymore since most modern web browsers just natively support ES6. Uh, if you want to use generators, you do. Uh, I didn't actually know that you can just write in ES6 and the browser will get it. Uh, it's like maybe like I'd say 60% of VS6 features are supported in Chrome and uh, a different 60% are supported in Firefox. Okay. Yeah, I'm just still babbling everything and making sure it's getting down to vanilla JS. Okay. It's got to happen. Yeah, it works out pretty good. Yeah, we're, we're, I don't mind it. It's, it's fun. just the setup's a pain in the ass, but ES6 is an amazing language. Yeah, it's not bad. It, it, I, I like better. it. <laughs> I, I like my type safety. Yeah. I don't think necessary. I'd, yeah, it's the strong typing. That's been the... Uh, well, I mean, before, before like, the V8 engine, there was there was way, way, way more to hate about JavaScript. Oh, absolutely. So, well, even with the... V8 just abstracted away a lot of that hate, but it was still there. Yeah, and then just the strong the typing. The strong typing argument has been, like, the longest standing one. Well, TypeScript. It's just with JavaScript, if you don't kind of follow that yourself, you're taking a huge performance hit when you look at like just memory usage alone of like how much uh, dynamic dispatch needs to be done under the hood mm-hmm. in V8. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, strongly typed JavaScript is relatively new because you know what? you need to... that, that that's not not that there isn't actual strongly typed JavaScript. It's a way to write your JavaScript to say. Ensure that the variable is always this type, so that way under the hood, the uh, bytecode well, being generated by V8. Ty- TypeScript is another transpiled language. Okay. Is that strong to type JavaScript? That, it just does that for the work for you to say, make sure this variable is always this type, and then right. when you transpile it. Is that, you but is that type strongly safety. typed JavaScript? What? Is that strongly no. typed JavaScript? Fourth no, thing. it's a no. higher le- level language that is strongly typed. That uh, boils down to JavaScript. Okay, great. It, it'd be like saying that Rust is a garbage collect, uh, a garbage collected language because it protects against memory, but it does that at compile time instead of at runtime. Wonderful. Let's move on to something else. <laughs> Have any of you been to Dallas recently? No. Wow. What's uh, in Dallas? A bunch of sirens that went off on Friday night because of a hacker. That's right. Uh, a hacker that might actually be within the Dallas metro area. Uh, managed to get into their whatever air raid alarm system they have and just uh, <laughs> trigger the alarms uh, in the city of Dallas Friday night, and the p- city officials were not able to turn it off until uh, 90 minutes into the sirens. Dallas has air raid, air raid sirens? It's, it's some kind of air raid or terrorist attack or okay. just everything's, you know... Stuff's going down. Just in so case the Japanese are getting crazy. Their defensive equipment down there. Chuck Norris is rolling into town. Maybe that's why. Sirens. That could happen. It's very troubling. It's announcing the homecoming of the of the ranger. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. In your bunkers. Don't make eye contact. That sounds right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you so, have a beard. Shave it. 
<laughs> to expose so, your third fist. No other beards <laughs> in town at the time of the Doris. So hackers hacktivate havoc wreaking hell sirens in Dallas. Let's hear it from our news department. Nomadium presents news to yous. Dallas, Friday, April 7th. The city of Dallas emitted a loud shriek late Friday night, startling residents across the city for over an hour, flooding the 911 center for Dallas metro area. <laughs> Apparently, all of Dallas' 156 sirens were activated by a hack, potentially originating in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. City officials would not elaborate more on the issue. Residents were treated to 15 90-second cycles of a siren, only to be used in the most dire of circumstances. At one point, city officials thought they had disarmed the sirens, when in fact they began to alarm again shortly thereafter. This attack is yet another example of why serious pieces of infrastructure should not be available to the public internet. What does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonia. So the first thing I'd say is, uh, you ever hear of Stuxnet? Because uh, the ending point of... Uh, Keeping your uh, critical infrastructure off of uh, public internet. Uh, Stuxnet was something that attacked uh, Iranian uh, uh, nuclear power plants that were completely disconnected from the public internet, and yet they were still attacked. So clearly, there are still ways for people to hack. I mean, there are some really funky bits of malware that can even just like listen. It uses the can like use the microphone to hear what keys that you're clicking or something like that. What? There's ways. There, there are pretty scary ways of bridging the air gap between systems. It is not. It is really the 21st century. But judging by how city and, and just generally how government officials like to not secure things, I'm sure that it wasn't all too difficult for someone to log on and figure out how to fire off these. Uh, one of the uh, one, sirens. One of the crazier research projects I uh, I heard about that I was near when I was in the military was. Um, Using using super high speed cameras like uh, forty four thousand frames a second to uh, to to back out audio signatures from uh, oscillations and like ambient light sources. So like you'd have a like a light bulb in a room where someone's talking, and you could point this camera at a window from like whatever distance, <laughs> and you could. Um, you could essentially back out the the audio signature based on the vibrations of the light bulb filament from the person talking in the room. Jeez. Yeah, Holy it was one of the craziest ones. Or even just like the vibrations in the window pane itself um, would like cause enough variation in the in the light to where you'd be able to you would be able to back out an audio recording. Wow. Yeah. Well, here's here's a here's a bit of of malware. It's called Bad BIOS, and I actually just pulled this up. It's uh, this is from Ars Technica. Meet Bad BIOS, the mysterious Mac and PC malware that jumps air gaps, like a super strain of bacteria. This root kit plaguing Dragos re what? Plaguing Dragos re re are you you is omnipotent. We're probably better off just not reading the article verbatim. Well, yeah, no, I was. Thank you. But I wanted to get to the point of, you know, how it worked. How does this work, Christian? 
Uh, I don't see the article on the outline, so I didn't get a chance to look this. Stop me from reading it. It probably just checks out all your nearby devices that show up on all your, you know, general GUIs anyway. Like when you check for printers, you check for uh, all the different stuff on uh, on Airbook or whatever that Mac Air thing, Airport that you can share files on. Not exactly. Well, so it's called Bad BIOS. Yes. Just taking a guess here. It's a uh, malware installed in, in, to the firmware of your motherboard that'll uh, actually be able to attack uh, pretty much every layer above from the BIOS itself, and also uh, uh, I think we're postulating BIOS, which would uh, allow you to then, while the computer is technically off, but there is still uh, a, pa- a power line going to the computer, execute code. It's pretty nuts. You know, you know what? Actually, that's probably you're right. That's probably what this does. <laughs> it just it infects the. No, because that's not what this. I'm sorry. I thought this was like what I what I had talked about, where you could it's some it's something with like the speakers and the keyboard and the something. I'll have to look it up for next time. Well, that's because you're in the BIOS. You're able to talk to every uh, piece of hardware without having to deal with a driver at that point. Right. Yeah, it's pretty low level. Um, <laughs> like the lowest level. Yes. And um, speaking of low-level attacks, uh, we can talk about some low-level people and the uh, problem that the tech industry has with bro culture in startups. Um, but before, bro, come on. But, bro. But bef- bro. Before bro. we get to that, bro. really quickly, I wanted to talk about, do, we, do, do you want to quickly just go around the, quote, room and talk about just a quick startup experiences that we've had because we've all been on startups or we're working at startups now um, yeah sure okay uh, uh you I, go last christian okay. uh let's have our guest ryan go first uh, i was just gonna talk about what's going on with uber man they uh i don't know no startups that you worked on oh, startups that, that i worked on that you've been associated with um like the one that you're you know the startup i guess you already you know the, yeah, the accelerator the one, that, the you're one on that i'm now in now kind of a, so it's kind of funny so so the our startup the idea came from probably the least the least techie and most I wouldn't say broy but uh came from like an equities trader who's a bit of a dick he's like really sensitive really sensitive to any situation where he might he may be getting taken advantage of and he's like he kind of stalemates he kind of stalemated a lot of the progress of the company and his co-founder is really like rightfully the CEO. The guy is much more balanced in his thinking, handles handles meetings and discussions really well. Um, and then they eventually brought in my buddy Tim, who uh, sort of saved their company from the wastebasket uh, last year. And he did all the tech work to get their, to get their product across the line and, and get it to where they could actually like field users. But in exchange, he took like a fifth of the company. And then, um, and then I came on, uh, really just because I was working with working with Tim. And then I came out here um, to be part of this accelerator, really, so I could I could be like the lead dev on this project and uh, have my name on something that went in front of like VC. Um, so that's that's sort of been like the value prop for me. But but yeah, I mean, I feel like the people that the people that have these ideas and and push them through and get attention for them initially. You tend to have a broier person at, that's like spearheading it. They're like the, I don't know, like the Spartan at the front of the line. It makes way for like more sound thinking. So, uh, where are you living in Boulder? Uh, Do they pull you up at a place or? Yeah. So uh, Kevin and Wes, they have a they have a friend 
uh, named Asa who owns uh, the Adventure Lodge. There's like a there's like a um, like an outdoorsy hotel type thing that this dude owns, <laughs> and uh, he also has a house up in like Sunshine Canyon uh, that we're staying at. Okay. Yeah. And and how do you? I mean, how do you? Uh do they do they give you any sort of money or per diem or some food or something like that? Do they do, the, do I mean, the, that? Do they just expect you to to have money? Well, the accelerator gives you like twenty grand. Oh, just to, is that at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. So just they they give you like twenty grand, um, just for your startup to you know pay for whatever you got to pay for while you're here, um, and they take like six percent of your company. So that's kind of the deal. And then in exchange, uh, they put you in front of they put you in front of their network of people. Um, <laughs> includes just a bunch of just a bunch of different like angel investors and some BC um, and they just have access to a ton of good people I was sitting on a bench like uh, a week or two ago handling some you know some nonsense back in LA like over the phone I got done I'm like sitting on the bench just like kind of just like rubbing my temples and this older woman's like sitting next sitting next to me on the bench and we start chatting about startup stuff and coding and whatever and she like, she's like, oh yeah, well back when I was making Priceline, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and then like a few other things. Uh, she's been part of like seven seven different large companies. Um, some of his names like Bernie. And she was like, yeah, back when I was programming an assembly back in the eighties. I'm like, Jesus. Um, but her name's like Bernie Strom. Like they have they have a really cool network of people they have access to at, at these accelerators. Um, now thinking at the thinking at the meta level, uh, how profitable is the startup accelerator game like how much money do you have to have to start a startup accelerator um i think you would need sponsors more than anything else you would need so you need a, a network of people and then just like a cash flow of, of, of people trying to fund so angel investors angel investors. Right. yeah i mean you would need yeah I but mean, it's not just a vc firm it's more than well that. no angel yeah. investors don't have to be a vc firm at all they could be even uh, your grandmother writing you a uh check yeah this is a very involved startup they're a very involved accelerator too like they really they get in they get into the psychology of the stuff and they bring it they essentially have classes like a few times a week where they'll bring in they'll bring in like who they're whoever their local experts are on um <clears throat> on like branding and 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 pitch and storytelling for uh pitches and stuff and they'll they'll just bring these people through like over and over again, just to just to get people up to speed and help you help you build your value proposition and make make whatever pivots you guys need to make and all that stuff. That sounds really cool. And when do you go in front of Kevin O'Leary? Kevin O'Leary. A, oh my God! Actually, actually, Wes, Wes actually did apply to get us in front of Shark Tank. I don't know. Yeah, if, yeah he actually did apply to get to get to get in front of him. Um, what kind of well, well? First, what kind of Bible do you have to sign to get into the startup accelerator? Like, I'm sure that agreement is probably they had to restructure the company, so they had to they had to convert to a C corp so they could issue shares and do all that stuff. So <laughs> there was some uh, legal footwork that that went on. Um, I actually I actually wasn't wasn't part of that. <clears throat> Man, I'm getting this little cough coming up, but um, I wasn't actually part of that. Um, facet of it, which I'm I'm pretty grateful that I wasn't. Um, gotcha. But yeah, there's been some maneuvering with that. I know I know they definitely went through some uh, jumping through hoops to convert themselves over to a C corp so that they were ready for it. Versus what an S corp? I think or? they're just an LLC. Yeah, they're an probably LLC, like, they're okay. probably an S corp before. But gotcha. you need to be able to issue shares 
if you're going to be an accelerator, obviously. Right. So God, that makes that makes sense. All right, why don't we go to uh, to Tyler? Why don't you talk about uh, the startups that you've been on <laughs> and maybe the one that you work for now? Uh, yeah, that one's uh, that's a great case. We the the core group was definitely uh, I think three or four guys. So. Which um, one was this? This is Little Star. This is the company I'm at now. Uh, we're a 360 and VR media company. Um, and closer and we, to the mic, please. Sorry. Oh, uh, sure. And we certainly don't have a bro culture at all. Now we're uh, close to 20 people, and uh, we're pretty well balanced between guys and girls. But we, in the in the beginning, there certainly was a period of, uh, you know, three coders in a room, all males, uh, <coughs> all certainly using the word bro a lot. However, there has never been. Any protein powder of any sort in the office or weightlifting. <laughs> uh, no creatine. You know no sweatbands. <laughs> no track suits. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that's just the Italian mob. That's not uh, a start. Sorry, I grew up around Italians, so the bros and the Italians so is like I. a gray line <laughs> intertwined with me. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, certainly, certainly no bro culture, but, I mean, you know, as much as you can not be a bro culture with you know in, in the startup world there's always certainly like uh ryan was saying there's just a little bit of uh dudes in a room together hacking away sometimes it's it's pretty common and the word bro gets thrown out a lot even though you know no one's lifting weights no one's uh no one's being bro <laughs> no one's got a lifted truck outside right um it'd be like an alabama okay. bro i guess alabama bro <laughs> I feel like that's like the more general use of bro. I, I feel like in this startup context, there's this whole other kind of bro. That uh, particularly that article that we'll go into uh, uh, after uh, this, yes. Uh, it focuses on where it's not really like the weightlifter. It's more of like just like that, uh, like uh, they complain about like that real like uh, dudes dude, like the type who's like. Uh, well, why don't you save it till we get to the article? Yeah. No, I know. So instead of that, I'm just trying to clear up any miscommunication. Uh, I, I agree with you saying there. It's uh, it's more like they're trying to stare. It's less like they're trying to stereotype a type of person. It's more like they're just trying to make the word "bro" mean uh, misogynist again. Yeah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, it's another code mean. word for misogyny. It's becoming one, which is rude because sometimes I call my bros "bro" and I'm not a bro, and now people are assuming my bro gender identity, and I don't appreciate it. Tyler, did I tell you that white milk is racist? Really? Someone yeah. su- the New York Times suggested that white trash is way racist. Okay, I, we're getting we're getting off track. Sorry. Christian, why don't you tell us mm-hmm. about the startups that you've been on? Sure. Uh, well, so my current company is an interesting one because we're kind of at that point where we're on the fence of startup versus a uh, slightly larger company that you can't really call a startup. When does that happen? Not uh, yet that's a, a good girl, question. not quite and a woman. It's definitely not like a uh, night and day difference. It's more of like this gray area that we're in right now. Of like uh, we're hiring pretty fast, and we're a pretty substantial company now. We're uh, well over uh, sixty people, uh, and our tech team is uh, getting larger, and uh, we're hoping to get even larger. And we just released an awesome uh, bit, bit of software recently, so uh, our, our our platform is really substantial now. It's not like a MVP running out in production, like a lot of startups that feel like a, their production is still just the MVP. And uh, so that's where I'm now. And uh, in the past, I've worked at uh, about several startups, anything ranging from early stage startups to kind of that late stage, like where I am now, where it's that are we still a startup? Are we uh, kind of like a standalone company that isn't uh, really relying on uh, uh, like the usual uh, kind of like 
skim everything. Uh, no, I shouldn't say skim. Uh, uh, trim the fat everywhere you can to uh, b uh, basically spend money on only the absolute ne needed and things like that that a lot of startups have to really scrounge cash for. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, and then I'll, I'll close it out. And uh, since I always like to have a certain kind of energy when I ramble on, I'll uh, play some music. My first startup was called Rate the Professional in the year 2009. No. Um... Actually, it was. It was Rate the Professional in 2009. I've been on three startups in 10 years because it was my goal before I turned 30 to become an internet billionaire. And I turned 30 in six weeks. You got six weeks then. Yeah, that's like enough that's time right, to I do. do stuff. You totally got this. <laughs> totally got yeah, this. Yeah, man. First, the first one was called Rate the Professional in 2009. It was like right as I was going to graduate college. And we wanted to be in East Coast Yelp before people on the East Coast really knew what Yelp was. And we, instead of like their kind of like casual, just hippies in tropical shirts complaining that their food isn't hot enough, we wanted to have like guys in suits that go around and rate businesses. And um, that, was, that was basically it. And I, uh, is, that came what, up for an, is that what Rate the Professional was? Yeah, it was ways that you could rate professionals. Not rate my professor, or what was the other one that people thought it was? Rape the professional. <laughs> we got that one a lot. Um, yeah, and so uh, we, what is it? We made a first version that looked horrible, but it did work. You could call that the MVP, though we weren't using that word because uh, Silicon Valley hadn't started airing yet. No. Um, what is it? Uh, so we did that. It was actually written entirely in PHP. And it was not really using a framework. It was a horrible bit of code. But that was the website where I hit the 10,000-hour mark with web design. And if you look at everything I did before then and everything after then, it has, it, there's a very stark difference. And it all happened while I was on a lot of Adderall back in 2009. Um, that fell out, or that fell apart. Second startup I was on was in 2012. This was just me. It, uh, it was called uh, Juniper. And the idea was... Of making a DIY website creator. So, like a mini Squarespace, this was right before Squarespace blew up. Were you actually incorporated with this? Uh, no. Okay, I was going to say, because there's Juniper, the uh, company that builds the network switches that... There's Juniper, yeah, no, I know, there's a big name, but, um... That could anyway. also have been, like, a Jewish potpourri company. That's funny. No? Juniper? I, I, okay. I want to laugh, but I... I, I I'm in hot water for last week. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, uh, anyway, no, so what happened was I actually, that started from a PHP framework that I had developed uh, and uh, refined into the PHP framework that I use now or used to use or whatever, uh, Nimbus, which is actually on my GitHub. And um, it allowed you, the idea was that you can make your own website in 60 seconds. And you just answered a few questions and selected a template and then... You would have your website, and that would be a way that we could just kind of that would be our quick, you know, elevator pitch competitive advantage. Uh, but what happened was right right around when we were like, it was basically me working on it, and I had one investor, and then just someone else I was just like consulting with. And um, this was when I was living in Pittsburgh, and I, there was not really any, and this probably was my fault, not really any work ethic, no like real project management, no real kind of drum beat it was just me kind of on my own doing it and that might have contributed to the failure but also soon thereafter squarespace got a super bowl commercial and i realized that i can't in my little basement in pittsburgh compete with squarespace at that point so i had to hang it up 
And then the third startup was Room That, which is the one that three of us were on. Sorry, Ryan. Um, and that was uh, two years ago. Almost two years ago. June of 2015. And uh, that was Tinder for Roommates. And uh, I... And so much more. And so much more. I was in charge of the, desi- the design. Christian was in charge of the infrastructure. And Tyler, you kind of swung between both. And we yelled, both well, of us yelled at you. I'd say more than the infrastructure is... CTO, so there's that. I but. was hanging out. I was writing code. I was company morale. Okay. Yeah. Wait. So how how how'd that go? What'd you guys run into with that? Uh, I'd say a big part of it was um, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of do you, do you guys feel okay if I were to badmouth it a little bit? Is there good um, mouth to be had you about want, it? You want a good mouth at first? Uh, yeah, I'll get method. It was a it, it was a good experience from a technical pers- perspective. Uh, I'd say uh, I, I guess because I was CTO, I kind of was like my ideal stack at the time. Uh, which funny is it's and that, my ideal stack now is totally different. But and uh, that kind of forced me out of Lamp Stack, which is I that I had been really arrogantly God. using that for a long time, and uh, I had to relearn web. De- I basically had to relearn web design during that startup, just because of. I really had to come to terms with how the industry has changed or how the medium is changing. Um, and go, yeah, go I'd say for all of us, it was a real learning experience in some way or another. For me, it was the uh, first time I was managing friends, so that was a little uh, touch and go. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> no, I'm being You're honest. A big it was just me, a, it, you know that. It, it was just a little uh, different for me. Of like, how do I find the middle ground there? <laughs> So yeah, but what about the actual like business of it? What'd you guys What'd you guys try to do for customer acquisition and stuff? Would you guys? So we didn't, uh, and this is part of why it didn't really work out. Is we didn't get to that point in large because the uh, non technical side of the company didn't really want to do anything until we had a product. And that was one and, guy. His name yeah. was Stephen. Oh, that's and he was Swedish. He didn't really sound and like that. And I'd say, uh, to kind of like sum up all those issues around that, though, is really just inexperience on that side of uh, first startup and uh, just kind of just in general inexperience with business. Now, the, the coolest thing about Room That is that I designed the whole thing around a cube. And well, this is my swan song. It would have been the coolest thing if it was built quicker. I remember you talking about the cube thing. And that was. It was I, it was beautiful because it only has one button and then you could and then it's 3D navigation so you would just swipe up to the nav face and then every section is a face of the cube. Uh, you swipe up to the nav and then the nav leads to all the other faces. It's perfect. And then you only need one button. That one button just goes to the nav and then you could just go anywhere you want. If you go to the bottom face, you can log out. And if was you spent half the time on developing it as he did on the marketing aspect of it, we would have been crushing it. No, I'm totally kidding was not my job to do the marketing. The problem was problem was that it wasn't usable. It wasn't just that... Uh, maybe I should have prototyped it months earlier. I decided it's 2020, as I'm wearing a Bernie Sanders t-shirt. Um, <clears throat> yeah, actually, but uh, we had a shit ton of experience with um, like our app. Uh, as soon as we got into the accelerator, within the first week, they just like sent us out to start talk to start grabbing people off the street and talking to customers, um, and start getting a but sense. But I mean, of how it, it, like, if you but you did, did you have to prototype a, a design or some implementation? We, we actually of a we already had we already had a V one of the product, um, uh, so it was already on the market, and um, we just had to deal with the problems that it had and there's essentially two big things one that it was asking for way too much shit up front 
Um, it was asking people for their Amazon login, for an, an address, and like a credit card, and then your Amazon login again. It just it just looks super sketch. Um, and then, so that was like the onboarding is a horror. And then um, it didn't really remind you of its existence. So so this product is um, it's called Shadowbid. You can actually get it, and you can get the V1 in the Chrome store. It's just going to ask you for a creepy amount of information. Um, but um, the other thing is it's a Chrome extension that lives on top of Amazon, and it was doing nothing to remind you of its existence. Um, and so after like a week or two of digging through like customer interviews and then watching people watching people use Amazon, we uh, started changing how we interacted with people. Um, so we started dropping in toast messages um, with some creative statistics. So um, people would be looking at whatever product, and we'd use what we knew about the price history to start telling them uh, how much this thing was above or below average and what the price change frequency is. Um, and so that's that's like the new feature, like in the beta, and also like the icon changes to show like an up arrow or a down arrow, depending on what the price is like. Currently, like <clears throat> above or below average. Um, and then we also have like an automatic buying tool. So um, instead of just like giving you a price alert, like if something changes price in the middle of the night, it'll actually just execute for you. Um, huh. But that's that's no one else in the market's really doing that. Partly because of the um. um the liabilities of like holding credit card numbers and stuff or and then just the just the complexities of of going in and and executing a bid on someone's amazon account is uh <coughs> can be like a little bit prohibitive so like we, that's the problem that we really solved um but then the interfacing around it and interacting with the customer to make sure that we're being like relevant to their shopping experience um, has been like what we've been working on with V2 and what we just we just put out to user testing and stuff this weekend. Um, and how does that go? Uh, how, did, how did that? Go? I'll hear back from I'll hear back from Kevin tomorrow because he's he's the one who has been like overseeing that and building out the user test. I actually had never even heard of usertesting.com before. Do you guys know about this thing? Uh, yeah, I came across it. Uh, I want to say about a year or and a half ago. Have you used it? Uh, we're we were debating using it or not. Uh, we decided to go with um, kind of a more traditional outsourced QA firm as opposed to user testing. Gotcha. But, it's yeah. pretty cool. Like you basically like you create a series of prompts, like what you want them to accomplish, and um, they they will have like a YouTube like like a, a camera in the background, and a user will just like narrate their way through like trying to use something for the first time. Um, I saw I've seen a couple examples of it. It's, it's pretty cool. It's a good idea. And you can get paid to do it. Like, if you're really strapped for cash, you can go and do some user testing for some startup. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool platform. So we've we've built what some of the, some of the new features for, for V2, and we're, uh, we're uh, just starting to get feedback now. Before we, before we start the next heat or the next sprint of, uh, of work to get ourselves um, to get this thing all wired up to our old API, and uh, get the second version out the door so we can be all and what is, shiny for investors. What is this built in? Um, the the first variant of it, they had coded up by some intern in like Angular one, um, and then the the API is written on a on a node seed. This guy um, this guy Ish out in LA built, and he's he's used this API 
seed for like I don't know it must be like a dozen different projects um, including another another client project that I've been working on called like rapid replay it's a pretty it's a pretty cool little app um, but yeah it's like well Ryan I think you're uh, you're Ciloning Ciloning oh yeah we or we had some electromagnetic interference just now I don't know what happened oh no Did you hear that I didn't I didn't get it at all oh yeah I don't know maybe we're being uh, possessed but um, why don't we move on uh, and talk about the problem with bro culture in the tech industry with Uber among other things, the tech industry has a problem with bro culture. People have been complaining about it for years, yet nobody has done much to fix it. That may finally change if the people in charge of Silicon Valley, venture capitalists who control the money, or Jews, no, uh, start to realize. Sorry. <laughs> start, sorry. Um, the Rothschilds. Uh, start to realize that the real problem with tech bros is that they're being bored jerks. Listen, I walked eight miles to a place called Kosher Palace today to buy food for my Passover Seder. Can I make that joke? You're you're Jewish. You get to drop all the Jewish jokes you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, look at Uber, that ride-hailing startup that most people really love. It's the biggest tech unicorn in the world with a valuation of nearly $69 billion. Not long ago, Uber seemed, the, in a, seemed invincible. Now it's in free fall, and the top, exe- top executives have fled. The company's woes sprung entirely, springing entirely from its toxic bro culture created by its chief executive, Travis Kalanick. Kalanick? Kalanick, I think is the actual way. I actually heard that a couple weeks ago. I think it's Kalanick. 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 Uh, oh, and really quickly, what is bro culture? Basically, a world that favors young men at the expense of everyone else. You were right, Tyler. A bro-co has a bro-CEO or a CE-bro, usually a young man who has little work experience but is good-looking, cocky, and slightly amoral. A hustler. So, in- instead of uh, reading the entire article, maybe now we can go into kind of more insight on this. And uh, what I will say is they do make a good argument of the idea of uh, the uh, a, a lot of these companies have inexperienced C-level people. And uh, the ones that do seem to be successful are the ones that then uh, recognize that and then uh, hire some more experienced people uh, to be kind of the intermediate, uh, um, uh, what's the right word? Uh, kind of like the, uh, a lot of like the other C-levels or the VPs uh, will be these more experienced people in, the, in those situations to be able to handle issues like this. Like uh, one of those things is that uh, you look at uh, Facebook uh youngest uh, successful entrepreneur out there at the time when he was getting started, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, but uh, a little unknown thing is the fact that he basically just hired, all right, who's the best known people uh, within either him or the VCs networks that he can uh, get to handle these a bit more, uh, both delicate situations as well as some of the uh, situations that he just was too green for. It is, I haven't actually looked at who, who's on the Facebook board or who's uh, who the C-level people are, but it's like, oh, it's is it a bunch of 50-year-old guys? Like, is it like just Mark um, and then... Uh, I think nowadays, though, it's actually a bit more of like uh, 30 to 40-something. In fact, I've been, I, I'd go out on a limb and say, uh, it, was, it seemed to be maybe about five years ago it was the trend to have these like young 20-something-year-olds at the helm of all these companies. Now I'd say that's been a bit more normalized, and you'll see, uh, I'd say, like, 
mid to late thirties and uh, early forties are uh, bulk of what I actually see at startups these days. Gotcha. I mean, I, I think Kalanick got like he got a little hamstrung with some of this nonsense. Like, uh, have you got any of you guys watched the video with the cab driver? Yeah. Uh, I don't which, believe I, mean, I have which actually. one. The the video the video they keep referencing where they say that. Uh, Kalanick quote unquote berated an Uber driver. It's really the opposite way around. Like it was this this rather cocky driver that was like telling trying to tra- tell Travis how to like run his company and how like they should just basically just like just a very a very bland argument from a very bland person saying like we should be paid more because we should be paid more because driving is some kind of super noble profession or some bullshit i don't know it didn't make any sense but like travis i think was actually pretty like he was pretty measured in his response he was like fairly patient with the guy and was actually trying to explain like some of the history of what uber had done and the guy just like kept laying into like telling him we can raise the price we can like no we wouldn't be competitive and so like i i I thought that that specific point was like totally unfair and like i i I personally like I, I find the media very annoying for some of the ways it treats things. I mean, the the, uh, the discrimination stuff and the, the sexual harassment stuff was was pretty pretty egregious. Um, like going throughout the company, like that stuff is valid. But then I don't know. They're trying to like snowball a bunch of other nonsense into. Uh, it seems like a general media takedown of Uber. Yeah, it's uh, that's obnoxious. I mean. I mean- and it yeah, was this. It yeah. was this. It was an Uber black driver that said, uh, "I have personally lost over a hundred thousand dollars because of you." What? No, that's just because if if you make a bad business decision, it's not the fault of your transaction processor that you suck at numbers. You know, no one made him sign a lease for a car or sign a. Whatever. Or sign with Uber, right? Yeah, you, you could, could be just a regular livery. Yeah, you could have gotten uh, a livery license and just gone and hung out at the airport. You have to have a livery license anyway, I believe, in New York at least. Yeah, I think you do. In, you do in most places. If you want, if you want to be like a Uber Black driver, or um, if you want to do like Uber Lux and stuff, you have to get the livery license. And all. They're expensive as shit too. I think a livery license in LA is like fifteen hundred dollars. How much is a medallion? Baltimore, you can just you can just drive Uber regardless. <laughs> when, I was in the, when I was down there, I said just about uh, every walk of life uh, as an Uber driver. I mean, you can you can drive for Uber just just fine. But if you want to if you want to get higher rates and stuff and and be an Uber Black driver or a Lux driver, you you yeah. typically have to get a livery license yeah. and all so that stuff. I, I How much does a medallion cost for a cab? I'm sure it's obnoxious. Uh, I think we're the wrong group to be asking about it. Oh. Yeah. Know, you don't, have any, you don't have any Italian relatives that would know that, Christian? Well, maybe back in, like, the 1920s, but my Italian side of my family wasn't even here back then, I don't think. I mean, I really think Uber doesn't get enough credit for what they did. Like, when's the last time you got into a medallion cab and said, this smells great, this is a or good place a to be? Or got into a regular yellow cab at all. It's, I, I don't know. Yeah, because it sucks, yeah, I, so we don't do I it. I used Uber, yeah. I, mean, I found that San Francisco people were more fans of Lyft. I don't, I don't know if that's a cultural thing there. I asked about that because uh, the people that I saw all use Lyft, and they were like, "Well, Uber's a terrible company, so we don't like it." Like, oh, okay, stupid. Yeah, that's the argument I usually hear. And granted, that there is definitely, I'd say, uh, a shortage of women in uh, tech companies, uh, particularly on the dev teams. I'd say, 
that said, I, I work for a company with a uh, director of engineering who's a female, and she's awesome. And uh, I feel it, it does have, help balance out the workplace. Like, I've worked for companies in the past where I've felt that it's just almost too much just dude time all the time kind of stuff going on, and it does kind of create this uh, unhealthy culture in uh, the company. <clears throat> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm personally just... I always just get out and go meet girls after work. It seems to be fine. It seems to work out okay. You said they have the discipline to not work all the time. Um, right. But yeah, the... Uh, Is that all that you want to say about CE bros? It's about CE bros? Uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of a Cal- Kalanick fan. I... Uh, I, think I mean, you know, Uber definitely, I think they have a first mover advantage or something that I, I don't think of Lyft when I want to get a, when I want to get a random no, car. Yeah, they, they, Kleenex, they Kleenexed the service. They really did. They Googled the service. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and per, you know what? I'm also a big fan of, like, because before, before the tech industry and before uh, I was reading another article today about super voting shares, like the reason that they're not going to be able to replace Travis without Travis deciding to step down out of his own volition is uh, super voting shares. There's a dual class structure in the shares of Uber, um, which has been the case. Wait, what is that? Um, for a lot of tech companies, which is like part of the reason that like that's part how that's how they can bring in a lot of investors and get their equity really diluted. Like I think Travis probably owns like less than a quarter of Uber. Um, Zuckerberg, same thing. I think actually I think Travis owns like six percent or some some silly. What is a super voting share? It's a it's a yeah it's a class of shares where like when it comes to like board decisions. You could have a handful of seats on the board that don't just have one vote. They've got like ten or twenty or seventy votes. Oh, and, wasn't and they there? Tend a... to be independent of your equity shares. Yeah, but they, these are actually say this is my influence in a way in the company, as opposed to this is my. So it's uh, it's more than a one to one ratio company. for votes to shares. Yeah, yeah. It's like a it was a creative. Um, like equity or like strategy to create these like super voting um, positions and shares so that uh, founders could make bolder moves and uh, bring in more people without having to have their influence diluted or get kicked out of their companies like what happened to Steve Jobs. Right. <laughs> um, and so like that really can't happen with Travis Kalanick and it can't happen or Kalanick and it can't happen with Mark Zuckerberg. Um I think that's generally for the better, and I, I do think it was kind of offensive. Like, because we had for years and years and years, Harvard and like the Ivy League bullshit sort of had control over. You know, once your once your company got to a certain size, it was going to be handed over to an Ivy League dick. Like, that's really that's really was the structure for years and years and years before, and still is the case in most industries. But in tech, we are protecting the scruffier. We're protecting the scruffier founder from being replaced by. Replaced by like business school idiots, jerk offs. yeah, jerks from the Hamptons. I, I'd say that's kind of like the uh, glamorized view of it, but I'd say that's not statistically speaking accurate. I'd say uh, for one, uh, it's kind of uh, any industry these days where you're kind of as a young company as opposed to an existing company, you do seem to have the existing founder. But a lot of these companies that really take off, it's either through connections or you, you get uh, well just. Plain lucky, and you get into something like an accelerator or things like that. 
And then there's the other side of it, though, too, where you do have a lot of these startups where, hey, somebody graduated uh, Columbia, uh, even NYU's got a, a lot of these connections to help you. And all of a sudden, uh, you, you have the startup idea, and you have your alma mater there being like, oh, we'll hook you up with some of these alumni here. They're a bunch of uh, investors, and uh, all of a sudden you get all that in. And it's either you are that Ivy League person, or they'll be like, oh, hey, we'll give you a bunch of advisors who are that Ivy League person who are kind of controlling from the shadows there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fine, but I... I am still. I'm. am I'm, I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of this concept that you can't replace the core guys unless they they want to be replaced or they want to leave. Not sure. um, yeah. But that, and that wasn't the case for years. Um, so I, I do think the dual. I'm a big fan of the dual class structure when it comes or the dual. Uh, uh, yeah, the dual whatever how whatever that called the the dual share structure um, with um, with companies in the last couple decades or so. Um, well, let's. Uh, I, w- I, I want to talk about stock and equity and, and shares and, and, and dilution and figuring out wh- if you are asked to be part of a startup, mm. how do you know what the best amount of equity you should you should get? I mean, off, you you may not have a choice, but if they, you know if you're asked what are you looking for, what, what, what how do you how do you figure out the answer to that question? Uh, I mean, I think you got to kind of know the valuation of what you're dealing with. Um, All right, yeah, you got to do your research. And so you have to do, and what is what is the research exactly? Uh, I'd say a big telling one is if they do have some kind of public indication of their last uh, funding round. And let's say they don't. Let's say they're kind of a new startup and they don't really. They're kind. They want you to help build their MVP. You actually, and they can't really uh, pay you. So, so they'll give you. A, so um, I guess let's be a little more specific here. Say this is a company that is just starting out. There are a bunch of founders looking for people to actually start building out the product. The fa- and, and, the, and let's say the founders don't want to actually do the, a lot of the grunt work. They just, they're the idea people. Sure. Which already yeah. imposes a risk because you've got three people then that may not actually be building. They might just be there. Sure. Well, the number of people could be whatever, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, when I say the number of people, it's more in, ter- in terms of the percentage of the company that they kind of reserve. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of ways to... Okay, yeah. There's a lot of ways to actually uh, do get, like, a very ge- uh, general idea of how much equity would be worth there. Uh, one thing is to actually look at, like, what are they asking for, uh, particularly if they have uh, some public way of displaying this. Like, if they're on angel list and they're looking for investors through there, uh, you can usually get an idea of uh, what their valuation would be. If they're... Um, Excuse me. Uh, if they uh, if they are uh, people from these top notch schools, generally you'll you will have a higher evaluation than somebody who is a dropout, for instance. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying to look for the right word here. Uh, additionally, uh, if they have uh, uh, successful startups in uh, the past, you can uh, get a general idea of. Uh, where the equity would be, the value of the equity would be, as opposed to somebody who this is their first startup that they're doing. Okay, but as let's say it is your first startup. As a founder, I mean, like when we were doing room that, and, you know, sure. how much, how much, how much equity do you want? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's a new thing. I'd want as much as possible. But then you also have to reserve yeah. some for dilution. You have to reserve some. So, like, how do you how do you figure sure. that, so that out? That, that is a t- that is a tougher one to figure out. That is one that you have to do the uh, the math of w- what is the current marketplace there, uh, and then you look at uh, who are the people on the team at the moment. Uh, what, uh, 
who who kind of has the direction, and uh, that's kind of something I, I didn't do and regret not uh, not doing. And uh, I'd say another part of it was the fact that uh, kind of just be like, uh, wh what is kind of like the actual plan to get funding? Uh, kind of uh, does this person have uh, contacts that they are, are, are like they are? Is this person who is also looking to form the startup uh, right away? Are they also uh, kind of got at least like, hey, they can uh, reach out to uh, such and such ventures or so and so who is a uh, just a general. Uh, uh, investor type person, uh, the, uh, technical phrase there, investor type person. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, if, uh, if they can reach out to these as well as uh, get the start startup going, because uh, I'd say from what you see with these more successful startups is the fact that they hit the ground running. They are both building uh, the application and getting funding at the same time. In a lot of these cases where it's kind of coming out of thin air, uh, there is the uh, idea of bootstrapping that became pretty popular of saying, don't really go for funding. Uh, try to do as much of it as out of pocket as possible until you start profiting. Nowadays, you almost sense, need traction before you can even talk about getting funding. Oh yeah, that 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 is done best, I'd say, in uh, areas where you've had prior success. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, say, uh, say you had a company that uh, sold, uh, and you're looking to do a new one, and uh, you take that money that you got from your last startup. And you bootstrap your company from there, and it's in a similar space. Maybe not competing, but you can be uh, like, "Hey, uh, so and so, who is a CTO at uh, such and such company, is going off and doing this new thing. Check it out. It's pretty cool." That's where bootstrapping seems to work uh, best. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, trying to get into a company when it's uh, sort of on its last leg in uh, like pre-seed, pre-seed funding. Um, it seems like if you're if you've got a good tech mind about you, that uh, there are plenty of opportunities to get into to get into startups with more non-technical founders when they've they've wasted their money on a couple a few dev teams and they've gotten something eighty percent done. Um, and at that point, like the company is basically in the waste basket unless you or someone similar to you steps in and does the rest of the work for free. Um, and I think in those positions, like you can you can definitely get. You can definitely get ten percent, twenty percent of someone's idea. Uh, I mean, I've seen like in this case, like my buddy Tim has done that a couple of times, um, including with this startup that we're that we're in now. Um, that's honestly, I mean, that's a that's a very predatory but probably quite lucrative practice. I mean, what else do you? How else do you want to go about it? Do you do you, do you envision the? Uh, do you envision the tables like any more? things to be like any more equanimous from the other direction like if someone has a startup and things are all relatively together and they just want to bring you in to you know as as, well, as a replaceable tech guy um they don't I'd have to give you that much of their idea at all might not even give you any equity yeah. they might just give you cash mm -hmm. yeah well i'd say the uh ideal situation there for an early stage startup is uh you're, you come in at the ground floor, and it really is like your dream team there. Of like, this is who I wanted working on the front end. This is who I wanted working on the back end. Here's who I wanted doing the infrastructure. Or hey, we're just a bunch of devs who can really do any of this stuff, and I'm re really comfortable with them. And we've got uh, a great business guy. We've got a great uh, marketing guy. Uh, by business guy, I mean like somebody who can uh, work with the VCs really well. Uh, and I think uh, that's one thing that I, I see, uh, at least in my experience. Far fewer startups are good with VCs than the idea of customer acquisition on the business side, and it's the ones that are good with the VCs that really do do well. 
<clears throat> we heard, we've heard some interesting uh, rules of thumb about dealing with VC. Um, we have a couple of finance guys who uh, uh, come in here and give us like sort of briefings every week and um, having us like build out financial models and stuff. And one of the one of the conundrums they talk about with bringing VC into any project is um, as soon as you get your first tranche of like VC money, the it almost seems like immediately the first thing that VCs want you to do is go out and raise more money, um, despite the fact that uh, it dilutes their position as well. So you st- you get into a position where you're um, inevitably so spending makes, less time on the business than you would like to be spending. That that makes sense in uh, the situation of going through an accelerator. That's uh, kind of part of what the company's there to do. Really, is to kind of do that uh, that round an entire round of funding. And when you're doing a round of funding, that makes sense. Uh, I'd say that uh, knowing when to uh, define the stop for, for a round of funding, regardless of the company's age, I feel like that can really uh, make or break a company. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because you get into, like, what's that? They say, like, you should be estimating, like, six to nine months for a funding round. It seems to be about how long it takes from when you start the conversation to where you can actually get someone to write a check. And I'd say it changes as you grow as a company. Uh, for like a seed round, I would say that's true. Series A, that's true. But then you get to like that Series B and maybe a Series C, or I've even heard of some companies with a Series D round. And uh, with those, uh, it's usually much quicker. Uh, you might be dealing with higher valuations, but less equity there, so it's kind of naturally uh, quicker there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, is uh, 1%... Of the fully diluted shares is I I believe that's a a um uh, not standard percent. uh no percentage um one yeah. percent of the fully diluted shares I believe that is a not standard but frequently used uh first kind of offering of compensation for mem- for early stage uh, startups or maybe just employees of startups uh is that is that wrong Christian I'm waiting for you to say no that's not true is that true well it it's uh, it's kind of like one of those things where it all depends on the company there. It's true and it's not true. Got it. Oh, okay. Well, um, I mean, it came from these articles that we're reading. Anyway, well, um, <clears throat> the one thing that I wanted to mention is that if you were offered 1% of a – you got it on the ground floor, and it's – let's say that there are – this example says that there are 11 million shares – I don't know where you come up with. Where do you come up with the number of shares uh, outstanding? Ten for a million company? shares is sort of a baseline. That's what most VCs expect. It's just, it's, just, it's closer to a round number that's um, <coughs> easy to divide up. Is it like the, like the a, level guys. equivalent to a dollar value that you put into something? Yeah, yeah. Something? So, so if I tell you that you have ten million shares, and if that's like kind of a standard across the industry with new companies then when i talk about a one or two dollar share price you roughly already know the valuation of the company in your head right that makes sense this uh i guess this is actually a real company ruckus wireless this is a uh but i said uh, this is from a law blog uh not bob law blogs law law blog damn it I can't <laughs> anyway but it's not that not 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 that one but if they they say that you start out uh, with 11, 11,359,000 shares, uh, and it's the VC or IPO price per share. The VC price per share is twenty three cents. And if you were got, if you were given the option to get one percent of that, that's one hundred thirteen thousand shares, roughly valued in this example for twenty five thousand seven hundred fifty bucks. Now, with Series B, 
And the, what happens is it, they have to dilute the pool of equity to allow for further investment. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Typically. Yeah, they keep... So you have, let's say you have, um, you've, got 11, you've got 11 million shares, but now you need another round of funding, and uh-huh. you need to be able to have more shares to give out. What do you do? So... Yeah, then uh, they start diluting ownership. Be, and that's just basically yeah, saying so, that we're doubling the amount of shares, hypothetically. Yeah. Just saying so, it's doubling. And uh, then, if I can on. interject, uh, what I will say is that there's usually two paths to this. That's one of them. The other path is from the get-go set, setting up a uh, dilution pool. So you have a certain uh, percentage of the shares that are just saying uh, nobody owns these. These are to be given for funding, and we'll do, dilute them as need be. Gotcha. Well, in this example of Ruckus Wireless... They actually went through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven rounds of funding. Gee. That's not unheard of. Your $25,000 initial 1% actually balloons up to $618,000 by the last, by the Series G. They IPO'd. Your 1% will be at $1.7 million. So, you know, that's not nothing from just a little sliver of a company. Yeah, it's a pretty cool Sorry. trick. Yes, but it relies on, I guess, dilution and further investment. Is that what is that what it is? Uh, I, I, I that sounds right. I don't have a whole lot of insight to that. I haven't spent too much time thinking about equity rounds and stuff. Yeah, well, this is that's the make or break with the with the monetary success slice of the startup, isn't it? I mean, I, don't know, I, I guess call me old fashioned. I think just building a building a product that works that uh, has a good consumer acquisition model and can scale effectively. I think you, it doesn't really matter how you slice it as long as you don't. Yeah, but if you build a product that works but you don't own enough of it, you're not really gonna. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, if you just keep the if you just keep your wits about you and try to try to keep a handle on as much of your company as you can. Um, and try to minimize the amount of the amount of investment you uh, you take. I mean, I think that's probably it's probably too easy to get into the, the Silicon Valley mindset seems to be too heavily biased toward toward taking investment and burning cash and building a shinier prod, product than you need to make to to meet your like customer acquisition goals. Um, I, gotcha. I don't think it's. I just don't think it's terribly necessary. I mean, looking at like on the LA startup scene, I just don't see that as much. I see I see more people start like building smaller, more like more humble ideas and building them out and getting traction um, earlier before they even start talking about funding. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like I feel like the like kind of the funding first model of doing things where you have a bunch of cash burn and then you like you try to work your way towards something that people actually give a shit about is like it's getting old and i think the a lot of the like the fat is sort of getting cut out of the market over time where you have to actually demonstrate more of a business before anyone will entertain the idea of handing you money for no reason do you think we're in a bubble or were in a bubble and it's starting to deflate i don't think so i think Bruce, like it's just, a, it's just an industry that's kind of maturing. Like building a tech company is not; it's getting to be less and less like uh, less and less sizzle, and more and more like actual functional product that you actually have to bring to the market before anyone can take you seriously. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no more Yo app. Yeah, like people know what it is now. Like back in the back in the nineties and two thousand, like early two thousand, you early two thousands, you would have people with. You'd have your tech people that 
had these ideas and things they ideas they thought they would fly and then like older people with money they'd be like i have no idea what you're doing but it's probably awesome here's money like those days are like getting old like nowadays people can reason by analogy they roughly know what your product does and they can much more intelligently gauge the likelihood of success and like but then you can start to sell apps like people pitch movies where it's like snapchat plus uh i don't know yeah i mean i think you Did, you hear that stuff somebody go somewhere i think tyler, it's getting uh, yeah what is that i think that's someone going down a stairwell tyler are you still here yeah i'm here Oh, Christian, are your neighbors coming home? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> neighbors. Yeah. New York City. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's see. This, uh, optimized for equity, not for cash. Uh, if you have an offer from an early stage company, don't bother to negotiate incentive-based compensation or MBOs into your offer. It says don't bother to. What is that? You- you may be used. You may be used to this kind of compensation scheme. I, I like how it says scheme at larger companies where it is quite common, but it just doesn't work at an early stage st- startup. Christian, what is an MBO? Uh, I have not heard of that before, actually. But it says they're quite common in big companies. Well, whatever. Um, okay, what? Uh, negotiating on anything other than cash compensation and equity. Uh, this is a. You know what? This is a bad article. I mean, it feels like if a lot of those things uh, feel like they're geared toward slightly larger startups, like not actual like and five, be six, seven-person teams. It seems like you're, yeah. Right. We're saying like age, Tyler, right? like Tyler, you're hired as an employee at Little Star. You're not a, you're not in the boiler room. No, I'm a real, a real boy. You're not one of the bros. You're just one of the close to the old circle. It's hard yeah. to get to the inner circle. Inter- yeah, you got to be in the inner circle and just get get lucky. You got to you got to show up before it before anyone thinks it's worth anything. It's the hard part. It's the hard part being in the right room at the right time. That's true. That's true. And you just ha- you just have to know, or else you can end up like me, having been on three startups that haven't worked out, and it just makes you an extremely cynical human being. Um, There's gambling. Anyway, too. he's got to roll those dice and get in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's take a quick break and uh, talk about uh, my little app that won't work for you, Ryan. I'm sorry. Oh, the Where Am I one? Um, yeah, Where Am I? I actually came up with uh, an idea for a sequel to Where Am I uh, called Next Train that will just tell you when, if you're in the subway station where the, when the next train is coming. That's it. Uh which almost works. Not all the trains have real-time information. I think only eight of them do. And the other ones have a timer based on the schedule, but the trains don't really follow those schedules. Did the, so, did the city put anyway. together that API? Yeah, the city has, the city has data sets. Some, there's actually a node module for the MTA's uh, schedule information. So you could actually type in the subway station, and it'll tell you the timetables for... Scheduling, and then I, and then where am I? Already has a list of all the subway stations. It's how uh, it's part of the app, so I can. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be too difficult to be able to put this together. And I think I'm going to do that, but it doesn't exist yet. Though I did get the ball rolling by buying nexttrain.nyc. So <clears throat> look for that in the future. But this, 
Have they have they repainted the stations yet, or is the paint still just like peeling off the walls in those stations? It really depends on which it, one. It varies greatly. They all still smell like urine. Okay. So there's no Aside from the second half line. That, I'm surprised. Surprised. Like I was riding washers. the queue today, but it was not uh, on Second Avenue. Anyway, um. Saffrons, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Pneumonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Simply go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find the neighborhood, borough, and three closest subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no tracking, just geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I from Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media daily. So that's pretty fun. Yeah. It is. Thanks. I, uh, it, it's a lamp stack site, and uh, one elastic search doesn't work. It has not working for me yet. And once that once that works, I can make it with modern technology. But I was able to make it with a lamp in an afternoon. I remember. So. I remember you showing me this. Like, uh, I feel like this was like a couple of years ago. It is actually. It's. It is a year old. Okay. I think I might have had the dom- had the domain in for like eighteen. It was months. like an all black. The, it was like the background was black. It looks like it a subway you- sign. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's all. And I'm a huge fan of those micro websites that just t- tell you one thing. Like I thought, like I, I was wondering if there's like, is it Easter.com or is it Eastertoday.com? <laughs> and all it says is like yes. no. no, and then it has a Google ad on the bottom. Because I saw a lot of people like you know coming out of churches when I was walking to Kosher Palace today. Oh, like uh, should I order a pizza.com? That that is just always a yes. Just says just says yes. Okay. So some uh, I I know the developer who made it and. Uh, one time somebody made a uh, joke and uh, completely overwrote uh, the actual website with uh, just uh, HTML, head, close head, body, yes, close body, That's close all you HTML. Need. My, uh, my buddy Tim bought a, the domain name for prettylegit.com, and I don't know if there actually is anything on this website, but I know that we frequently in conversation tell people, like, prettylegit.com gives it, like, five hamburger buns, or we just make up a different metric every time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Quick Tangent. Uh, I say that a lot. Uh, and usually once per episode, I mention that I own QuickTangent.com. But um, Actually, speaking of one there? last, one last, there's nothing there yet. Uh, it just leads to other things quickly. Um, <laughs> one thing to, uh, one last bit of New York uh, news. Move over Pizza Rat. It's time for Taco Squirrel. Have you guys heard about this? Taco no. squirrel. This hungry squirrel is taking New York by storm, one taco at a time. New York's wild animals have become internet sensations for snatching food crumbs off the street. 2015's Pizza Rat is perhaps the best known among them. But naturally, this Twitter photo uploaded Wednesday, which you can't see over the internet. I mean, you can, but not while well, I'm reading this to you. Uh, <coughs> uploaded on Wednesday morning of a squirrel munching on a hard shell taco in Brooklyn. It's going viral. <laughs> the furry rodent was spotted atop a tree branch by Twitter user somebody, and people are going nuts. Move over, Pizza Rat, she captioned with the photo. Ooh. So it's a picture of a, of a squirrel in a tree with a whole taco that he managed to take up with filling that he managed to take up into the tree. Yeah, this, oh. made, this made it unmashable. Anything. Did it? Yeah, I'm looking at a picture well, of well, taco squirrel. This is from the New York right Post. The... Uh, Third worst newspaper in the tri-state area. <coughs> so, 
so man, that's that pretty that amazing. It makes him a, a flying burrito squirrel. I I, I was searching for this, and in the process of it, I found like a picture of a pigeon with like bread wrapped around it, like it had it had eaten its way to the center of a piece of bread. A, a squirrel also trying to get into a Shake Shack milkshake. Uh, <laughs> just various squirrels and other animals trying to get into fast food. They like they like it too. Yeah, I mean their um, lives aren't very long either, so I guess it doesn't really affect them all that much. Like, no, and if squirrels have a Shake Shack milkshake, they'll be blitzed on sugar. That's a happy the, squirrel. The amount of energy that they have. How long does a squirrel yeah. live? Is it like a couple of years? It can't be. I don't know. Why don't you ask your phone? They hibernate, so it's how long? longer than one year. They they hibernate. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huh. I've got my money on maybe about five years total. Yeah, probably five to ten. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, I mean, shit. I'm sure it also depends on the type of squirrel. Uh, Google says... The common uh, the common gray squirrel can live up to 12 and a half years. The Siberian wow. chipmunk lives from 6 to 10. The alpine marmot lives from 15 to 18 years. Man. That's really surprising. I would have thought squirrels live... I think rats die in like a couple of years, generally. Well, most of them get hit by the subway. Yeah. Or eat something poisonous. Like, you know, they eat a an AIDS needle or something like that, and that's the end of them. So if you had a world of if you had a world of rats, like like squirrels would be like the Gandalfs of like the rat world that live like six times longer than everyone else. <laughs> and just have like way more wisdom. That's how I that's 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 how I feel about rat life and squirrel well, life. Well, wasn't Gandalf immortal and the elves just live yeah, longer? Yeah, I, mean, I, I figure Sorry, if you I, live... I don't mean, I don't mean to talk about here, but... If you uh, live six times longer than the rats, then I think that makes you like a wise, elder, Gandalfy type creature. So squirrels are the Gandalfs <laughs> of the rat world. Yeah, you're like the, the big <laughs> pig that dies at the start of Animal Farm. Ooh. Oh, you oh, spoiled it, Tyler. What? How? I didn't even know. I mean, if you didn't read Animal Farm by now, it's been out for like 80 years. So I think it's, it's your problem <laughs> if you got spoiled for you. Starts off so cute, then it's not cute. It starts to feel well, a whole lot like note. Russia after a while. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that brings us to the end of yet another episode. We've reached the 90-minute mark. Have we? And the... Sorry? Have we? Yep. Man. Yeah. And the joke that we always tell on this podcast is that it's an hour long. It used to be, but now it's not anymore. So, But now it's not. But now it's not. <laughs> so next week on Paul Request, yeah. Um, so, Ryan, it was fantastic having you. Is there anything? Yeah, I mean, we can, we can listen. There's no, there's no time limits to podcast, uh, podcasts. If you want, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about with startups? Mm, with startups, I don't know. Let's see. You're welcome to come back anytime and talk about something else, but today is a startup day. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about startup stuff at the moment. How about, how about you guys, the rest of you? Spotify is uh, the a successful European startup. Anyone have any points on that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Something about the uh, increased regulatory environment in Europe does not breed as many successful startups as it does in America. This is true. Sounds right. There is a problem because because we are not properly prioritizing 
STEM education and and, and increases yes. in infrastructure, a lot of them are moving to Canada. We're not really. We're going to have a big problem. Mm-hmm. Also, they're building like in, in uh, uh, Silicon Valley in India and other other countries that typically the idea that you have to go to America to do this I mean, one good thing. Two years, but I mean, they're good. No, no, no but I, I I say in ten years. I mean, think about it, and I didn't even think about how much the the industry has changed in ten years, but it has changed quite a bit in ten years. Ten years from now. I don't know. I think we'll have many... The idea that you have to go to America to make it big with an app or a startup is going to be yesterday's news, I mean, I've already... Which, that yesterday mm-hmm. is... Today. I've already definitely witnessed people taking business ideas or, like, uh, business models from the states and going to developing countries. Like, Indonesia has a whole market based around just copying every idea we've had in the last, like, five years. Like, Gojek is their version of Uber... They've got um, just every, like, food delivery service, um, everything. But then they, they even have some things we don't have because they actually they have an actual, like, lower class. Like, they have, like, go maid and, like, go massage where, like, people will, like, like maids will come to your house, like, with an Uber-like interface. Or you can have, like, a masseuse come to your place. Um, like, all that nonsense that you just wouldn't, huh. you just wouldn't have in the States. Ooh. Um, and, like, Gojek is, like, an Uber service, but it's done with, like, mopeds. So you can get, like, a moped taxi across the city. Um, and it's extremely cheap. That's pretty cool. They did that in South Park. I think Indonesia might also smoke the most cigarettes out of any other country. But, and with that bombshell, it's time to end. So thank you all very much for coming. Uh, Ryan, do you approve of this week's poll request? Say yes. <laughs> he says okay. yes. He says yes. Uh, Christian, do you approve of this week's poll request? Looks good to me. Tyler? Approved. Well, then let's all hit merge. That is not merge. <laughs> and we'll see you next week right here on Poll Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pull Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries.